the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Jonathan Merritt will be my guest later this hour, learning to speak God from scratch, why sacred words are vanishing, and how we can revive them. He did a really interesting uh, study using Barna uh, regarding how we communicate about our faith and the absence of that kind of conversation, the impact it has on us as individuals and as a culture, and the importance of reviving the use of these sacred words. Also, we'll talk in the 5 o'clock hour with Dan Gaynor. He's the Vice President of Business and Culture at the Media Research Center. Uh, we're going to talk about YouTube. They've decided that they're going to um, decide for viewers uh, and content creators um, whether or not they're going to be permitted on the site without uh, editorializing um, that content. We'll explain all of that when Dan Gaynor joins us in the 5 o'clock hour. First, some of the developing news stories of the day. President Trump's legal team has vowed not to let him walk into a perjury trap, rejecting special counsel Robert Mueller's latest proposal for an interview. Ohio's razor-tight congressional race from Tuesday's special election got even closer today, or actually through Wednesday, after hundreds of uncounted voters were found, the county officials uh, announced. The Iowa town where college student Molly Tibbetts disappeared is on edge. They're shaken to its core, a community watch organizer says in an exclusive interview and prosecution star witness Rick Gates finished his testimony on Wednesday at the fraud trial of former partner and ex-Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort. A man arrested at an extremist Muslim New Mexico po- compound was training children to commit school shootings, court documents allege, and Florida prosecutors released hours of video interrogation footage of Parkland shooting suspect Nicholas Cruz on Wednesday. He said that he was uh, inspired by a demon. Well, the perjury trap uh, that's been set, Jay Sekulow, Sekulow, an attorney for President Trump, said Wednesday that the president's legal team turned down the latest interview proposal from special counsel Robert Mueller and promised not to allow the president to walk into a perjury trap. Mueller's team has put forward dozens of potential questions for the president, including some about his firing of FBI Director James Comey. But his attorneys have argued that prosecutors can't ask Trump about actions he's taken while in office. If you lined up 100 lawyers, you'd have 100 lawyers say, don't sit down for an interview. Seculos uh, said that 
Calling the Mueller investigation irregular is being kind. This is an investigation that from its outset has been corrupt. There's no question about that, he said. Well, Mueller and Trump's team have gone back and forth over the scope of the uh, uh, conditions of an interview as the special counsel looks to understand whether the president acted with a criminal intent to stymie the investigation into possible coordination between his campaign and Russia. Meanwhile, the president's legal team did not detail the terms of any counteroffer it may have uh, made, and it also did not... uh, uh, not suggest that it was uh, close to agreeing to an interview, suggesting the possibility of additional negotiations. Meantime, long after the FBI cut ties with former British spy and Trump dossier author Christopher Steele, senior Justice Department official Bruce Orr continued to maintain extensive contact with him, according to newly reported emails. Those emails, which were first reported by The Hill, reveal that Steele even continued to send information to Orr after the election. The FBI suspended and then terminated Steele as a source in early November of 2016 for what the Bureau defined as the most serious of violations and unauthorized disclosure to the media of his relationship with the FBI, according to a House Republican memo earlier this year. The FBI reportedly told Steele at the time that he could no longer operate to obtain any intelligence whatsoever on behalf of the FBI. Yet the emails show that Orr, a former Associate Deputy, Deputy Attorney General, and Steele's communication extensively, uh, they communicated rather extensively from 2002 all the way into 2017. Uh, One last message from Steele to Orr in January of 2017 reportedly said, B, doubtless a sad and crazy day for uh, for you, re-SY. The text is an apparent reference to President Trump's firing of acting Attorney General Sally Yates. The text continued, um, just uh, to check check you are okay, still in the um, SITU and able to uh, help locally as discussed along with your bureau colleagues or reportedly replied I, um, I'm still here and able to help as discussed I'll let you know if that changes hmm well Steele said if you uh, end up um, out though I really need another bureau contact point number who is briefed we can't allow our guy to be forced to go back home it would be disastrous in quote well it's unclear what and whom Steele is referring to in that exchange the Hill report that uh, reported that FBI officials admitted they continued to receive information from Steele through Orr. The FBI declined to comment when asked whether the uh, Bureau relied on Steele's intelligence uh, after their working relationship was terminated. Steele also sent one email to Orr on the 1st of July in 2016, obtained by The Hill, making an apparent reference to Trump. I am seeing redacted in London next week to discuss ongoing business, but there is something separate I wanted to discuss with you informally and separately, Steele wrote. It concerns uh, our favorite business tycoon. Orr and Steele reportedly had a call on the morning of the 7th of July in 2016. Well, Steele authored and compiled information for the controversial and unverified anti-Trump dossier on behalf of Fusion GPS, which was uh, hired to conduct opposition research funded by the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign through law firm Perkins Coy. Well, last year, uh, it was confirmed that Orr's wife, Nellie Orr, worked for Fusion GPS during the 2016 election, and according to court documents obtained by Fox News last year, Fusion GPS hired Ms. Orr to help investigate Trump. A separate Fox News review to her uh, previous published works uh, revealed she wrote extensively on Russian-related subjects. Well, the dossier formed an essential part of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA warrant, approved uh, to surveil then-Trump campaign associate Carter Page, according to the House GOP memo alleging 
uh, government surveillance abuse during the 2016 election cycle. Well, according to new documents obtained this week by the Washington Examiner, or also continued communicating with Fusion co-founder Glenn Stimson uh, before, during, and after the election. Other emails obtained by the examiner reveal Steele's communication with Russian aluminum financier Oleg Deripaski. Steele emailed with Orr about Deripaski, who has uh, seeking a, a visa to attend a meeting in the United States. According to the examiner, the U.S. revoked his visa based on alleged involvement with Russian organized crime. Well, Deripaska was uh, reportedly close to former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Those communications raised questions of whether Steele was working with Deripaska while working on on the dossier and whether Fusion GPS and the Justice Department were involved. It is a developing story, but certainly uh, worth uh, investigating further. And the hotly contested Ohio race headed for a recount. It's possible. The nail-biter played out in Ohio's 12th congressional district, got uh, even closer on Wednesday after 588 uncounted votes were found in a suburb of Columbus, according to county officials. The uh, ballots were tallied, and Democratic Danny O'Connor gained 190 votes on Republican Troy Balderson. The GOP candidate, who was endorsed by President Trump, currently leads by 1,564 votes. Well, the Franklin County Board of Elections said in a news release that the newly discovered ballots had not been processed into the tabulation system, and the issue was um, corrected. O'Connor, who is from Franklin County, celebrated the news by tweeting red sirens and informing his followers that he is confident he will soon be declared the winner. He asked for donations to continue the fight, that the votes are counted fairly. Now, keep in mind, the winner of that contest will only serve until the November election. This was a special election to replace the vacancy left by the previous uh, representative, and there will be a face-off between these two individuals once again in November. Now, this is a seat, the 12th uh, Congressional District in Ohio, that has been held by Republicans for more than 35 years, and this close race, some would like to suggest, uh, signals that uh, Trump is going to have some real difficulty in the midterm elections. I think that might be a bit of an overstatement for a special election held in uh, in August, but nonetheless, uh, those uh, uncounted ballots at least reduce the numbers between the GOP candidate and his uh, Democrat rival. And a community watch organizer in Brooklyn, Iowa, said Wednesday that in a town where not a lot of big things happen, the disappearance of a college sophomore, Molly Tibbetts, has shaken the community to its core. Now, the interesting thing is this same scenario was playing out all around the country where all kinds of girls and women of um, different shapes, sizes, and colors are lost. This one has gained a significant amount of attention, as it should, but so should many others as well. Scott Hawkins described the town where he grew up as a normally safe neighborhood where everyone knows everyone. This is a close-knit community. We don't have a lot of uh, big things happen uh, crime-wise. Hawkins said that members of the community are on edge and that the disappearance of Tibbetts is something that affects them personally. Any child in this community is basically a child of the entire community. We all stick together. We're part of you know, one big group of people that knows everybody. So for somebody to go missing like this and disappear off the face of the earth with no trace, basically, this is a shock. Tibbetts uh, 20 was last seen jogging on July the 18th. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back.
All right, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 22 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. And I think I failed to mention that Dave King is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. He's off doing Fish Fest stuff this afternoon. He'll be back tomorrow. We're taking a look at some of the developing news stories of the day. Rick, Co- uh, Rick Gates rather, has finished three days' worth of dramatic testimony in federal court against his former business partner, ex-Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, but not before defense lawyers caused a stir by pressing him for details on his past infidelity. And a man who was arrested last week at a New Mexico compound linked with extremist Muslims was training children to commit school shootings, according to court documents filed yesterday. Prosecutors allege that Siraj Ibn Wahaj, 39, the father of the missing three-year-old, was conducting weapons training on the compound where 11 other children were found hungry and living in squalor. They asked uh, Wahaj, uh, who appeared in court on Wednesday, uh, be held without bail. Uh, His son, uh, uh, he is rather the son of a Brooklyn imam, also known as Siraj Wahaj, who uh, was named the, uh, by prosecutors as an unindicted co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the New York Post reported. Now, I, I don't understand this unindicted co-conspirator, why there weren't uh, charges filed, but nonetheless, authorities raided the uh, compound on Friday after a month-long search for the uh, three-year-old boy, his son, with severe medical issues who went missing from Georgia in December. On Monday, a child's remains were found on the property. Authorities are trying to determine whether the remains are that of the missing boy. And the prosecutors on Wednesday released hours of video interrogation footage showing Parkland, Florida shooting suspect Nicholas Cruz slouching in a chair, being repeatedly urged to um, uh, to speak louder and punching himself in the face uh, when he is alone. The footage contained the same material as a transcript released earlier in the week, and both were edited to remove what authorities say was a direct confession by Cruz to the February 14th massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. The video made t- a public on Wednesday shows Cruz hunched over at times, leaning back at others. He's seen wearing hospital clothes and speaking so saf- softly at the beginning of the Broward County Sheriff's Detective uh, uh, John Curico has to repeatedly urge him to talk louder. Much of that interrogation focused on the a demonic voice Cruz claims that he heard inside his head for years that urges him to commit violent acts. Hmm. And on this day in 2014, Michael Brown Jr., an unarmed 18-year-old black man, is shot to death by a police officer following an altercation in Ferguson, Missouri. Brown's death leads to violent protests in Ferguson and other U.S. cities. And on this day in 1969, actress Sharon Tate and four others are found brutally slain at Tate's Los Angeles home. Cult leader Charles Manson and a group of his followers are later convicted of that murder. Those murders, rather. In 1945, on this day, three days after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan, The United States drops a nuclear bomb on Nagasaki, killing an estimated 74,000. And on this day in 1936, Jesse Owens wins his fourth gold medal at the the Berlin Olympics as the United States takes first place in the 400-meter relay. And finally, on this day in 1854, Henry David Thoreau's Walden, which describes Thoreau's experiences while living near Walden Pond in Massachusetts, is first published. 
Voting machines in at least one U.S. state already may have been compromised by Russian operatives ahead of the midterm elections. So says a Florida Democratic senator, uh, warning without uh, evidence. According to the report in the Tampa Bay Times, Senator Bill Nelson claims the Russians have already penetrated certain counties in the state and they um, now have free reign to move about. Well, Nelson's office has yet to respond to the request for comment or for evidence. In the Times report, he indicated that he and his Republican counterpart, Senator Marco Rubio, have been asked by leaders of the Intelligence Committee to uh, let election officials in their state know that the Russians are in their records. Uh, This is... um, no fooling time, Nelson went on to say. Rubio's office wouldn't comment on the matter, but the Times said two other county officials have cooperated Nelson's remarks. Nelson and Rubio, who is the an intelligence committee member, uh, wrote to elections officials back in July warning about potential threats to their state's election apparatus. Nelson and Rubio suggested in uh, that 2018 would be a year that demands greater awareness of cyber threats and encourage state officials to take advantage of the wide range of services provided by the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to safeguard against such intrusions. County election boards should not be expected to stand alone against a hostile foreign government, Nelson and Rubio argued, noting that our decentralized system is a strength, but it also means the responsibility resides with each of us to be sure our locality is secure. Nelson told reporters on Wednesday that the Russians are hoping to sow chaos in our democratic institutions, a notion that has been repeated by both President Trump and U.S. intelligence officials. Last week, top cabinet officials doubted uh, that uh, rather doubled down on what they called an ongoing and pervasive threat from Russia. Democracy itself is in the crosshairs, according to Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. Well, President Trump officially directed the Pentagon to establish a sixth branch of the U.S. military uh, to, on Monday, speaking at the National Space Council meeting at the White House. Mr. Trump called for a space force to ensure American dominance on the higher frontier. The vice president today made that uh, announcement more firmly. The president also signed his administration's third space policy directive calling for establishment of new protocols and procedures to manage and monitor the increasing number of satellites in low Earth orbit and the tens of thousands of pieces of space junk and debris that pose an increasing threat to costly spacecraft. The directive follows on the heels of two other major space policy initiatives being implemented by the National Space Council, one calling for returning uh, humans to the moon before eventual missions to Mars and another aimed at streamlining the federal space bureaucracy to reduce red tape and streamline licensing and oversight of commercial space activity. In remarks that ranged uh, over the, a variety of unrelated topics, the president began by saying current U.S. In, uh, employment uh, levels were the best in recorded history and blaming current immigration problems on the Democrats. Everyone wants us uh, to establish this space force, he said. We want to do it more than... Uh, uh, more than you know, turning his attention, the president praised the National Space Council and its chairman, Vice President uh, Mike Pence, for his, uh, its work refocusing national space policy, saying, for too many years, our dreams of exploration and discovery were really squandered by politics and bureaucracy, and we knocked that out. My administration is reclaiming America's heritage as the world's greatest spacefaring nation, and he went on. The essence of the American character is to explore new horizons and to tame new frontiers. But our destiny beyond the earth is not only a matter of national sec- identity, but a matter of national security. Again, the distinction between a military space force and military exploration for civilian uh, purposes. All right, just a reminder, uh, coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Jonathan Merritt. He's the author of Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. 
He talks about why, uh, from a linguistic standpoint, it's important that we communicate on these central uh, issues that reflect and relate to our Christian faith, uh, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of others and the culture in general. So we'll talk with uh, Jonathan Merritt in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, welcome back. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, new research from the Barna Group demonstrates that only one in eight self-identifying Christians speaks of God regularly. That is, only 13% of practicing Christians have a spiritual conversation on a once-a-week basis. Why the substantial disconnect between a subject claimed as important and the willingness to converse about it? Well, in his new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them, my next guest, critically acclaimed religion and uh, columnist Jonathan Merritt, examines why once commonplace religious words are now rarely uttered and makes the case for carefully, thoughtfully, and deliberately bringing them back. After moving from the Bible Belt to New York City, he found himself uh, mute in a strange land, one that didn't automatically understand the Christianese to which he was accustomed in the South. He quickly learned of the spiritual language barrier, the words that spark controversy or brew confusion, and also the ones such as lost and sin that are sure to bring an abrupt end to the conversation. Well, he decided to investigate, commissioning both a nationwide study and conducting his own thorough polling, friends, strangers, and delving into a full-on study of linguistics in a world where words are increasingly misused, overused, and not used at all, like in emojis. He predicts that spiritual language in America will be nearly extinct in his lifetime if the current trends continue. That means our culture will become less spiritually aware as a result. It's a fascinating uh, book. Well, a contributor, uh, contributing writer rather for The Atlantic and contributing editor for The Week, Jonathan Merritt is one of America's most prolific and trusted faith and culture writers. He has published more than 3,000 articles in outlets such as The New York Times, USA Today, National Journal, Christianity Today, Washington Post, and CNN.com, and is the author of numerous critically acclaimed books, including Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. He holds graduate degrees from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and Emory University. Chandler School of Theology. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, Georgine, it is a pleasure to be with you today. This is really a fascinating uh, subject, and the the context that you put it in really, uh, I think, leaves us recognizing how important it is that we talk about things that, as uh, I mentioned a moment ago, we claim are central to us. Tell us a little bit about the experience of moving from the South to New York that led you ultimately to writing, first studying, researching, and then writing, learning to speak God from scratch. You know, a few years ago, I, uh, I turned 30 years old. It was about five years ago, actually, now. And uh, I, I had written three books, and I thought, how much wisdom does a 30-year-old have to share, really? So I just said, you know, I'm not writing another book until I encounter something so important and so critical that it has to be written. And uh, a few years after that, I moved to New York City. And when I got here, I, I encountered what I say in the book is this unexpected language barrier. It wasn't that I couldn't speak English anymore. I could still uh, relay an address to an Uber driver, but I could no longer speak God. So what happened to me, and I think it happens to a lot of people, you don't have to move to New York City to feel this tension, is I was really struggling to communicate meaning with all of these words that I had been given, sacred words, religious words, moral and ethical words. And when I would converse with people, either it would cause tension or it would cause confusion. And over time, I realized I'm not having spiritual conversations at all. And when I looked around, I found that a lot of people were just like me, and that's when I said, okay, something is going on here that is important, that's rising to a crisis level, and it was time to pick up the pen again and write the book that that you now know about. Now, you analyze the modern Christian vernacular, something we don't think about often, and you commissioned research from the Barna Group. What were the results of their findings? Well, one, one thing that uh, I started with was just asking people, how often do you have spiritual or religious conversations? And I found that uh, about a quarter of Americans say, never, never. Not one time in the last year, I haven't had one. Uh, about another quarter say, uh, almost never. And you only get to about 7% of Americans who say that they have spiritual conversations regularly, which is about once a week. And that's not all that frequent. When uh, And I'm, you mentioned this stat uh, in your intro. I thought when we just looked at practicing Christians, that's like the real religious folks, you know, people who go to church regularly, that that number would skyrocket, but it didn't. It barely inched up. Only about 13% of practicing Christians now say they feel confident enough to speak God. So that means you go to church, you're, you're there with only the most faithful people, and you look around you, only one in eight, eight of you feel confident enough to have spiritual relig- or, or religious conversations. And for me, that sort of raised some big questions. Does it matter? And if it does matter, why does it matter? And if it does matter, is there something we can do about it? And so I directed my research for the next four and a half years to figuring out what the problem was and what we should do about it. Well, let's talk about what the problem is. Why do people avoid talking about God? And we're talking about people who have a relationship with him, who uh, by their own admission have a, a, a walk with him. Why are we reluctant to engage in conversation, either with one another or with those who perhaps don't know him personally? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you already brought up, I think, something that, that was so confusing to me, which is, as human beings, we naturally talk about things that we care about. You know, if you had a friend who who you had uh, had for five or ten years, and then you found out one day that they had 
a spouse and children, but they'd never talked about them and you had no idea, you would just be shocked by that because if we care about something, we talk about that something. And what happens in the United States is that sort of has begun to break down. More than 70% of Americans claim to be Christian, but most of us say we cannot talk about our faith anymore. We, we claim to care about these things, to care about spirituality, to care about religion, to care about the church, to care about God, to care about faith, to care about matters of, of the soul. But we're not, we're not making that transition from belief to articulation. So I want to know why is that? So I took all the people in our poll who said they don't speak God very, very often at all. And I said, well, why not? What, what's, what's the problem? And I found a range of reasons. Some people said, you know, these, pro these, these kinds of conversations just cause tension or arguments. Uh, about 28% said that, which means if you've, if you've ever been to that uh, Thanksgiving dinner where Uncle Carl is shanking the drumstick at you and having some sort of uh, debate about religion, you'll know what that feels like. A lot of people say that religious words have just become too politicized. Some people say, you know, I've overused this language, that I've, I've used a lot of these words so often that I don't even know what they mean anymore. And then you have another group of people who say, I've been hurt by these words. I had a pastor or a parent or a friend who used these words to shame me. They, they were in a Sunday school class or they were in a, they were in a church and they, were, they felt hurt by these words and the words became toxic for them. So there's a range of reasons, a plethora, but they're all leading to the same place, which is people who now lack confidence in the vocabulary of faith. Mm. Now, one of the things you mentioned, and I wanted to rest there for just a moment, is the idea that um, these sacred words have become too politicized. This is a, this is a typical thing in America. We've seen uh, an escalation in, in recent administrations, plural. Um, but I think that has, has made some people reluctant to use words because they have been misused or uh, used for purposes other than to um, speak on spiritual things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right, because, you know, if you think about it, every word, whether it's a spiritual, a sacred word, or whether it's just a common secular word, uh, derives its meaning from two things, its definition and its connotation. That means you can look it up in the dictionary and it says this is what it means, but it also derives meaning from the way it's used. So when you have uh, politicians on TV, maybe you don't like that politician, maybe you do, and you hear that politician using these words to, to uh, co-opt voters or to uh, induce some sort of emotion among the electorate, it takes on a different connotation, a different flavor, a different meaning. And what people say is, is it sort of makes it feel like this holy thing has now become something else. And so they, they tend to just steer clear of it. And, and it's important to say this. It happens on the left and the right. It, it was, it's not just George W. Bush and, and Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, used religious language quite often. Barack Obama used religious language uh, a surprising amount as well. And so it's, it is a, a problem that afflicts the American public square in general. It is not a partisan problem specifically. Well, what's the importance of saving sacred words? And maybe before we answer that question, we, we consider what are some of the sacred words that you, re you reference? Yeah, you know, the, uh, I talk about Google Ingram, Ingram data in the book. So Google allows you to search the frequency of words that are used at any given point in time. They've gone back since to, to the 1500s and cataloged all of this. 
And what you find there is is religious words like, you know, a big, a big fat theological word like salvation. That, that word has decreased dramatically. But that's not all that surprising. Even basic moral terms have declined. So words like grace and mercy and wisdom and faith, sacrifice, uh, evil, these kinds of words have declined by 50% or more since the mid-20th century. They are plummeting in usage in the English-speaking world. So when you look at this, just about every moral, religious, and spiritual term is, is in massive decline. Uh, why does that matter? It matters for a number of reasons, and, and if you're listening to this, whether you, you consider yourself a, a very religious person or not, it actually affects you. It matters because there's this emerging body of research now in linguistics that shows this airtight connection between the words that we use or don't use and the thoughts that we think and the behavior patterns we express. So a great example of this is in the English language, we speak a futured language. We have a future tense. So when you compare us to languages that don't have a future tense, you find that our culture will smoke less, for example, because we're always thinking about the future compared to a non-future culture. We will save more per capita for retirement. So our behavior patterns shift. Why does that matter? It means if we don't talk about God, if we don't talk about faith, we don't, our minds are not attuned to God or to faith, and our lives aren't built around those. But if you expand that out even further, let's say you're not a religious person. If we do not talk about courage, if we don't talk about compassion or patience or kindness, which we're not, all of those words are in decline, we become a less patient, courageous, kind, and compassionate society. So what we're seeing now is not just the demoralization of language, but that that is leading to the demoralization of the American society. We're talking this afternoon with Jonathan Merritt. His latest book is Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation.
We are back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Jonathan Merritt, author of Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Now, during this journey, you spent a year studying linguistics. You discovered some, uh, some call, something you called comeback languages. Uh, how can linguistics help us revive the language of faith? Yeah, you know, I, I began to study, uh, you're studying linguistics, which is, uh, about the most boring thing you can imagine, but I'll tell you, the readers can be happy because I did it for them, so they don't have to do it. But, uh, I went back and I started re- researching dying and dead languages. You know, there's tons and tons of languages that die, uh, every single year. They fall out of uses for, usage for, uh, a range of reasons, and I wanted to know what causes a language to die. And in the midst of that, what I, what I found was, is not only can living languages die, but actually dying languages can be revived. That there's this phenomenon called comeback languages that I was finding in a lot of these books. And those are languages that they've, they've gone to the brink of extinction, and then they have been resurrected, to use uh, a sacred word. Uh, they've, they've come back from the dead, so to speak. And so what I wanted to know was, what, what does it take to bring a language back from the dead? And I found there were two things that had to be present. One, there has to be this renewed interest uh, among the speakers, a renewed commitment. And that's, I think, one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is to wake people up is to, to, to sort of uh, alert people to what's happening, that sacred speech and spiritual conversations are dying in America. They are dying. Uh, the second thing is, is then after I wake them up and they have that renewed commitment, you also have to have the, the willingness to allow a language to come back to life in a new way, which means to begin to dream about new ways of understanding these words. So when you look at comeback languages, probably the most um, uh, popular example is Hebrew. You you know, with the rise of the modern uh, Israeli nation-state Hebrew, which had gone to the brink, is now uh, being revived. Out the window, I'm looking at South Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Uh, You go there, it's the Hasidic Jewish Quarter. You'll hear Yiddish. That's a comeback language. Irish is a comeback language. Catalan is a comeback language. Hawaiian, comeback language. All of these languages, when they've come back, they've come back in a slightly different form. So, so the words have taken on a slightly different meanings, meanings that now will help people to address the issues of the current culture. Syntax has shifted. And that makes, I think, some Christians uncomfortable. But what I'm trying to do with this book is to invite people into this process of saying, what would it mean to reimagine these words for our day? and then to begin using them afresh. Now, you write that as God speakers, we have three choices of how we can respond to the fact that the the language is dying. Explain those three and how certain groups among us might tend to respond to those options. Yeah, so I would say any time that a language is dying, there are three possible approaches that a community can take. The first two tend to always come with good intentions. So, all of these approaches, uh, the people who employ them have good intentions. They all want mm-hmm. their faith to be vibrant, but the first two don't work so well. The first one is what I call fossilization, and you find this among uh, fairly conservative people, tends to, to gravitate toward older, o- older generations, so conservative American evangelicals will gravitate toward fossilization, which is where you protect words. You say, 
What these words mean is what they've always meant and what they always will mean. So if you go, for example, and I'm not, uh, not picking on this one tradition, but, you know, Calvinists, for example, they really value the sovereignty of God. So if you go to a Calvinist church and you bring up the sovereignty of God and you say, does that word mean what you think it means? It's not something that's t that tends to be well-received uh, at a lot of those types of churches. They would say, no, that's something that sort of we've already figured out. And so this is a bad approach for a number of reasons. One, it's one of the fastest ways for a language to die. Linguists don't agree on much. They're like pastors, probably like radio hosts and writers. <laughs> they don't agree on much, but they do agree on this. Every language will either change or die. Every language will trend toward either evolution or extinction without exception. So this is not a great approach. Uh, it also tends to chase away doubters, questioners, young people who tend to fall into those camps. And so it's not a great approach. The second approach is, is kind of the approach that liberal Christians, mainliners, will kind of gravitate toward. I talk about like Rob Bell, Barbara Brown Taylor, who in, in, in their own way, and I would say with good intentions, will say before they speak, you know what, I'm not going to use the word God very much. Uh, in this talk. I'm not going to use the word God as much as some of you would like because that word's taken on meanings that aren't so positive for some of us. And so what happens is you, you don't protect words, you pitch words. You start to find words that you don't like or that are convoluted or that have been harmful and you just sort of throw them away. Sometimes you'll substitute them with uh, a different word. And that approach doesn't work so well because it's not scalable. You, you kind of keep pitching words and then you don't have anything left in your vocabulary. And also, Christians, we're people of the book. We have a sacred text. And so if you just say, for example, I don't like the word sin, so I'm not going to use the word sin. Well, that's all well and good until you go back to the Bible, and now you start bumping up against this word again and again. It hasn't gone anywhere. You've just stopped using it. You've avoided it. So what I'm arguing for in this book is what I call language transformation. So unlike fossilization that protects words or substitution that pitches words, it allows us to play with words. It takes kind of that the ancient uh, Jewish approach of midrash, of being imaginative with language. Uh, C.S. Lewis advocated for this approach, for example. Uh, a lot of modern-day theologians like N.T. Wright, probably the greatest New Testament theologian alive today, uh, advocates for this approach to allow words to sort of come alive again in our hands as we begin to use these things. So doubters are welcome, speakers are welcome, uh, the, the spiritually curious are welcome, and we, we, we begin to have conversations about what these words should mean what, and how we should use them in our day in our way. Now let me ask you to clarify, because I know some of our listeners are thinking, so we just redefine words according to how we might feel about them, or are we talking about actual definitions, but talking about them in a way that, that reflects our culture today? I explain what you mean by that so that we're not, we don't misunderstand. Yeah, that's a great question, because what I'm not saying is that red can mean blue. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 you, uh, if a word can mean anything, then a word means nothing. Uh, what I'm, what I'm, I'm saying instead is, is that words can begin to take on new shades and textures. A great example of this, uh, is if you look at the, the earliest usage of the word sin in the Old Testament, you'll find sin is, is conceived of as a weight, a weight that is placed on us. So if you ever, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you read the Old Testament, they have the scapegoat where the priest puts his hands on the scapegoat 
places the weight of sin on the scapegoat and chases it out of the town. By the time you get to the New Testament, there's a new conception. It doesn't necessarily invalidate the old conception. It sort of is giving us a new way of thinking about sin in terms of almost the economics. So Paul's able to say the wages of sin is death. And Jesus is, is sort of conceives of that same bank account, so to speak, in the opposite direction. It says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven that will not decay. So now, today, you might hear someone say we have a sin problem, or they say, you know, that we, we are sick with sin. That's clinical language or problem-solution language, which is new language. It wouldn't come in the Old Testament, but it helps us to conceive of these things in a way that makes sense for our current culture. And so uh, there's a great book by C.S. Lewis called Studies and Words, where C.S. Lewis talks about this process like a tree where it's always connected to the trunk. The trunk is kind of the core meaning of the word, but the, the branches sprout out over time as we conceive of new ways of talking about these concepts in our day that breathes new life in them and equips us to face the challenges that are unique to our culture and time. Well, I wish we had more time because there's so much that uh, more that could be said, but let me ask you where our listeners can connect with you online and learn more about your book. Yeah, they can grab the book. The second half of the book is all essays on different words, so they're fascinating. Words like sin and mm-hmm. lost and grace. And they can connect with me uh, at my website, jonathanmerritt.com, or on social media. I'm on all the social media networks, and uh, I'm happy to connect with different readers and answer questions online. Well, I so appreciate your taking the time uh, to talk with us and for doing the, the legwork that we don't have to do now and better understanding <laughs> how sacred words can, in fact, be revived. Thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Again, Jonathan Merritt. And by the way, his name is spelled M-E-R-R-I-T-T, if you'd like to look him up. Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing, and How We Can Revive Them. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Dave King is engineering today's program, James Blinn producing. He's off doing Fish Fest stuff. Today he'll be back tomorrow 
on our Fun Friday program. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk with Dan Gaynor. He's the Vice President of Business and Culture with the Media Research Center. Uh, you may not have uh, followed the story, but YouTube has decided that its viewers and content creators are only allowed to believe what they decide is right, especially when it comes to climate change. And BuzzFeed reported that the video platform has started combating scientific misinformation, in quotes, by putting Wikipedia entries, now mind you, Wikipedia entries, uh, at the bottom of all climate change videos produced by conservatives. Now, they've uh, the uh, dragnet has caught others as well, but uh, here to talk with us about that is Dan Gaynor, again, Vice President of Business and Culture at the Media Research Center. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. You know, there's a growing concern about censorship on social media platforms. Tell us what YouTube is doing and what it is that they're trying, what problem they're trying to solve. Well, what they're trying to solve is disagreement. They're trying to determine that there's really only one authorized worldview. Uh, You're not allowed to even be a professional climate scientist and have a different view. So if you post a video on YouTube that says something about uh, what the left likes to call climate denial, which the right calls climate skepticism. Where if you question that you know, the nature of climate uh, climate theory, they attach information at the bottom of your video so people see another side. Uh, and you know, that, that's basically where they're trending toward is that there's one approved view. Now we've been seen we've seen an increasingly large uh, use of this kind of strategy. Google attaches. Uh, Wikipedia bios or information boxes to people. We recently found uh, the California uh, Republican Party was somebody had modified their Wikipedia page, so they were called Nazis. Uh, a member of Congress was was depicted as if he was deceased. Uh, Wikipedia uh, is set up so that anybody can enter information, anybody can edit it, and so what we're getting is not only propaganda but potentially garbage propaganda. Well, and Wikipedia itself admits that it's not a good source for information for the reason you just explained. Anybody can add anything to it. So for them to choose Wikipedia to undermine the message, and in in many of these cases, PragerU, for example, um, uh, hosted by Richard Lindzen, uh, their videos are are excellent. They present a, a differing point of view from what YouTube has decided to embrace. Uh, and by adding um, this advisory, if you will, at the uh, at the bottom, or if some of these other sources, uh, undermines their credibility and undermines the free exchange of ideas, which one thought that's what these platforms were supposed to be about. Well, they're clearly not about that right now. And look, the conservative movement is trying to object to that. Uh, the Media Research Center is leading a coalition of more than 40 different conservative organizations to combat uh, online censorship, and this is part of it. Uh, we're, what we're wanting is fair treatment. The left has decided two key things, and they're, they're the ones who are pushing these social media companies. The left has decided that there's really only one approved view of many different is, you know, issues, and beyond that, they've also decided that disagreement or telling them that the things that they don't want to hear is akin to violence, and so must be stopped. 
when you think about the broader implications of this, uh, if left unchallenged, then there will be a narrowing of the kind of information that we have access to, and there will be those higher up at YouTube or elsewhere who determine what uh, we are supposed to think, what information we're supposed to have access to, uh, to the point where you are uh, you're unaware of alternate point of views, you're unaware of challenge to the uh, the the thinking of the of the hour, if you will, uh, so that the implications over time are really very significant. Well, yeah, the idea that you can't point out flaws in climate change theory, the idea that you can't point out how go if you go back into the 1890s, they were talking about global cooling again, then global warming up through you know in the in the Dust Bowl era, the 1930s, global cooling, then global war. You know, I mean, it's it's a uh, it is a back and forth that they've been doing for years until they finally decided on climate change. And so uh, the media have depicted this all over the map. Now what the left and the media want is that there's only one version of facts that are allowed. That's a, it's an insidious and really uh, Orwellian way of looking at the world. Uh, there's a lot of different things. You can have more than one set of facts. You can certainly have different sets of interpretation. And you know, the idea of science is, you know, is it replicable? And if somebody can point flaws into your data or your analysis to the point where you know, what you did might be questionable, that's the whole essence of science. So the people who are anti-science are the ones who are advocating for this. Yeah, yeah. Well, what can the average YouTube user, um, the average social media user do? I know the Media Research Center really helps us to recognize what's happening, but what can we do about it? Well, the first thing is, you know, people can complain about it. I mean, they, these are these are social media platforms, and they respond to consumer complaints. If they go from getting... 10 or 20 to 10 or 20,000 about this, maybe they listen. Uh, the left is really good at putting people in the street. The right is not, So, because we all work for a living. <laughs> so, so I certainly hope people do that. They can su- certainly support uh, the censorship coalition. They can sign up. We have a petition uh, asking for you know, people to, to do this better. They can simply go to newsbusters.org and click on the censorship project from there. And we really encourage people to get involved, to, to let us know when they see signs of censorship. This particular thing, somebody alerted to it. Mm-hmm. And that's how we will find out that, that these things are going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, help us understand this uh, issue and for the work that you and the Media Research Center are doing. Well, thank you. We couldn't do it without you, and we appreciate that. Again, Dan Gaynor is the Vice President of Business and Culture at the Media Research Center. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Sandra Merritt, you might remember her. She's uh, responsible for those Planned Parenthood films. She's one of two. Well, more than a year after she uh, was arrested for producing these undercover videos of Planned Parenthood's unethical procurement of baby body parts, the San Francisco Superior Court this week returned the $75,000 in bail money that she was required to post for her pretrial release. Well, she previously turned herself in to Californian authorities to uh, answer to politically motivated 15-count felony charges brought against her by the California Attorney General at the behest of... Planned Parenthood. Well, the court has now correctly decided that Merritt is not a flight risk and returned the bail money that she should have never been required to pay. Attorney General Xavier Becara, or Becerra, uh, was also ordered to produce more documents that he has uh, withheld regarding his office's collusion with Planned Parenthood and bringing, the maintain, bringing and maintaining uh, the charges against Merritt. Rather than investigating and prosecuting Planned Parenthood for the inhumane conduct depicted in those videos, um, evidence gathered by Merritt... Uh, um, the Attorney General filed charges against her, claiming that her undercover video recordings violated California law. Well, the new documents required to be uh, turned over by the court are expected to provide even more evidence in support of her recently filed motion to disqualify the Attorney General from his prosecution and to dismiss the discriminatory selective, uh, selectively brought um, uh, against her by way of charges. Well, Liberty Council is uh, defending merit and is seeking dismissal of these outrageous and baseless charges. And today no other citizen, journalist, uh, and journalism organization has ever been charged with a crime for undercover recordings. This was the exception. Sandra Merritt, a mother and grandmother who has lived in the same house for 41 years, should never have had to pay an exorbitant sum to win her pretrial freedom. Horatio Mayet, who's the vice president of legal affairs and chief litigation counsel at Liberty Council, Sandra is certainly not a flight risk as she does even have a, doesn't even have a passport. She'll continue to meet Planned Parenthood and its attorneys uh, general. Uh, ally in court until these outrageous charges are dismissed, her attorney uh, says. Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, said that it's time for the light to shine on this discriminatory prosecution, and we look forward to the day when Sander will be fully exonerated. Well, this certainly is a step in the right direction. Well, uh, after expelling several um, religious-based student groups from campus for discrimination, the University of Iowa is being sued for religious discrimination itself. The University of Iowa chapter of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA was one of the student clubs kicked off campus for not conforming to a university rule that clubs have to eliminate a faith-based precondition to serve in leadership. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship consulted the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, a nonprofit legal group, and boy, are we blessed to have these uh, legal uh, Christian legal groups to help in these kinds of cases. Anyway, they sued the university on Monday for violating its First Amendment rights. Well, the lawsuit states that on the 1st of June, the university abruptly emailed InterVarsity student leaders and instructed them that they had until the 15th of June to change their leadership selection practices or be uh, deregistered. Well, the group responded by emphasizing the importance of having Christian leadership for the Christian club. You get the Consistency there, the lawsuit says, but the school rebuffed it. The university further stated that InterVarsity student leaders could not even be strongly encouraged to agree with InterVarsity's faith, according to the suit. Well, the university has disallowed numerous other clubs for the same reason, including Muslim and Sikh groups, it says. Well, Beckett Senior Counsel Daniel Bloomberg, he said in a formal statement that banning religious groups from having religious leaders just flat 
uh, flattens diversity and impoverishes the university. And while the university singled out religious groups for supposed non-adherence with its non-discrimination policy, he said the school has exempted or ignored leadership and membership restrictions set by other student groups, such as sports clubs, fraternities, and political organizations. Well, the university won't comment under its policies on pending or ongoing litigation, according to the school's media relations director. Kristen Schrock, president of the university's InterVarsity group, did say in a prepared statement that we're grateful to have uh, have been part of the university community for 25 years, and we think that the university has been a richer place for having Sikh, Muslim, Mormon, Catholic, Jewish, atheist, and Christian groups. Because we love our school, we hope it reconsiders and lets religious groups continue to authentically reflect their religious roots. Ryan Anderson, senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and co-author of Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination, called that case an example of how our liberties hang or fall together. Students should be free to associate around a common cause or mission, including religious ones. He went on to say that uh, they should be free to advocate for that cause and live out that mission, and that requires the ability to select leaders who support the cause and embrace the mission. How sad that in, in the name of diversity and pluralism, the university would seek to curtail the freedoms that protect true diversity and principled pluralism. We'll continue to follow the story and that suit and let you know what happens. Well, the Oregon Transportation Commission that oversees uh, the Oregon Department of Transportation, ODOT, uh, we'll discuss tolling at its uh, August the 16th and 17th meetings as directed by the 2017 Oregon Legislature. The commission has to submit a proposal to the Federal Highway Administration by the end of the year to toll parts of or all of our freeways. Well, the legislature says that if the federal agency approves the proposals, ODOT has to implement it regardless of what the public thinks. But the initiative filed on the 27th of July says uh, such tolling on existing freeways has to be authorized at a statewide election and has to be approved in each of the counties where tolls would be imposed. If it attracts enough signatures, the measure is going to go to voters in 2020, years before the department can impose any such toll. So keep your eyes and ears open for that if you're opposed to the idea. As part of the Transportation Commission's work, ODOT commissioned an online DHM research study that was conducted in Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas and Clark counties in December of last year. It found that only 22.5% of residents in all four counties are willing to pay a toll weekly or more often. The largest block lived in Clackamas County, but it was still only 26% of all residents there. Slightly more, 31%, agree that ODOT should explore multiple options for encouraging people to alter their transportation choices, including tolling. Even if the initiative passes, there's still a way tolls could be imposed without voter approval. No vote is required if the toll are used to pay for new net capacity on the road or bridge on which the toll is assessed, something the survey says more residents support. Asked what they would uh, like officials to do about congestion, 51% chose expand and improve freeways, an additional 14% picked expand and improve freeways. Only 3% said add tolls in Oregon to uh, and from Washington. Ironically, the legislature intended the tolls to solve a problem that a majority of survey respondents agree is serious traffic congestion on Portland area freeways. Lawmakers believe tolls will reduce congestion, especially if they increase at peak travel times, a concept known as congestion's pricing and value pricing. And of course, if you have that kind of flexibility, good for you. Most people do not in terms of when they come and go to their place, to and from their place of work. Well, the 2017 transportation funding package that directed the uh, 
Commission to make the proposal, also dedicated the revenue to congestion relief projects in the Portland area, like expanding the I-5, I-84 interchanges in the Rose Quarter, adding a third travel lane on I-205 between Stafford Road and Oregon City, including on the Abernathy Bridge. Well, the majority of survey respondents, 81%, believe congestion is a serious problem on both I-5 and I-205. Those who agree range from 76% in Multnomah County to 91% in Clark County. Public perception of the problem is pretty widespread. About uh, 80% of those who commute on I-5 and I-205 believe congestion is a problem. 90% of uh, non-commuters think so too. Those over 55 are slightly more likely to believe congestion is a problem, even though they commute less than younger residents. Regular commuters also are more willing to pay tolls than non-commuters. So are those who have experienced toll roads before, but they still represent a minority of all respondents. By the way, this toll needs uh, voters approval initiative for um uh, was filed by Gladstone Planning Commissioner Les Poole, State Representative Mike Nearman, um, and uh, Representative uh, Julie Parrish, both Republicans, one from Independence, uh, the other West Lynn. Parrish has a political consulting firm that referred a state health measure um, to the January 2018th special election ballot where it was defeated. That doesn't mean this one will. It's just a bit of uh, history and context. By the way, Washington officials could begin jostling for a new Interstate 5 bridge, replacing the Columbia River crossing. Uh, it's now re-entered the public arena. Re-entered as in, okay, what's going to happen this time? Well, the Columbian reports that the Vancouver City Council unanimously passed a resolution backing that the uh, Columbia River crossing be replaced. The council wants state lawmakers to fund a new structure. Uh, the vote reinforces what Vancouver Mayor uh, Ann Mac- uh, McInerney Ogle uh, told the uh, public in uh, February. With more residents moving to Vancouver, the region must accommodate a growing commuter base. According to the Columbian, the resolution encourages Washington Gover- Governor Jay Inslee and the legislature to find money for a new bridge. We uh, screwed up big time when our Washington legislature dumped a funding piece back in 2013, uh, McInerney Ogle said earlier this year. But in those five years, the city of Vancouver alone has 10,000 new people that moved in, and they're wondering what's going on with this I-5 conjection, uh, congestion. So it's um, uh, it goes back to having a little education about what that uh, was like, uh, what it was all about, and who are the decision makers on that project, she went on to say. Well, she added during the meeting that neighboring cities and local ports should pass similar resolutions, according to the Colombian. A new structure could cost close to $3 billion, and that's, of course, with a B. According to the most recent estimates, much of the funding would need to come from the federal government, and, of course, that would have a major impact here in Oregon and would require approval on a plan uh, for each end of the bridge as well as the span crossing the Columbia. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
We're back 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, it turns out the worst types of litter, plastic straws, not even in the top five. Huh. Plastic straws aren't uh, on the only environmental contaminant missing from the, the uh, missing the trash can, rather, uh, or recycle bin. Um, the companies such as Starbucks, uh, they've moved away from plastic straws. I mean, you're sort of the enemy of the people if you ask for one or use one or are seen uh, holding one, but the national nonprofit um, uh, Keep America Beautiful told USA Today that the uh, that their uh, the straws are getting a lot of news, but on the volume basis, straws are literally a drop in the bucket. Now that doesn't mean you know you shouldn't be concerned and all that, I suppose. But straws um, are not really high on that list. Plastic straws didn't even make it to the organization's top five most common forms of litter, according to the group's uh, national study. Cigarette butts, top of the list. Paper of various kinds, food wrappers, uh, confections, and napkins and tissue topped the list. Now, I can remember during the Tom McCall days where uh, littering was, I mean, it was just a crime. You didn't throw something out the window. You didn't, you put everything in a receptacle and being clean and tidy, keep Oregon green, keep Oregon clean. It was a big deal. I was proud of my city. It did, you know, it was a, uh, an important thing. Uh, these days, um, you see it all the time. In fact, I was driving down McLaughlin, and I looked over, and the guy two lanes over from me rolled his window down. I saw his hand come out, and he drap- dropped a wad of paper on the on the highway. I couldn't believe. I almost couldn't breathe. I'm from that era where you just don't do that. It was hammered into us. You don't litter like that. But according to a national study, cigarette butts, paper, food wrappers, um, confections, and Nap, uh, napkins and tissue topped the list of the top five. Some of these uh, items uh, might get into the environment by accident, uh, but, you know, accidents do spread litter. Uh, the products themselves generally aren't bad in and of themselves, as the president and CEO of Waste Zero, which leads hundreds of waste reduction programs nationwide. They become bad if, they, uh, if you don't recycle them. The worst is that they become litter. And, of course, there's lots of litter around these days. Here's what you should do. Cigarette butts. Even though smoking is down nationally, tobacco trash is among the most frequently uh, a seen a littered item in America, according to Keep America Beautiful. Cigarette butts are easy to toss on the ground, especially uh, when ashtrays aren't nearby, and these days they aren't. I, th- I think people think they're biodegradable, and therefore it's okay to throw them down because they will ultimately just disintegrate. Some people don't consider that cigarette butts are, in fact, litter. Improperly discarding them um, ends up in the waterways, posing serious risks and uh, to marine life and everything else. So just one example of the top five, and again, straws, not uh, not in that top five list, so something to consider. By the way, an elaborate plan masterminded by a college dropout to help the Pacific Ocean um, uh, off uh, with the Texas-sized island of garbage is going to kick off next month, but not without some concern. It sounds promising. Some experts have expressed concern about the impact it could have on marine life as well as the uh, message it's sending. Although, you know, if you can get rid of some of it, I suppose there is a pretty big upside. Well, Dutch inventor Bjorn Slot, the 24-year-old CEO of the Ocean Cleanup, is spearheading the multi-million dollar project to clear the floating island of trash, dubbed the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which now stretches 600,000 square miles between California and Hawaii. 600,000 square miles. They're going to start uh, conducting tests in September. 
Well, Slat's plan involves a 2,000-foot-long U-shaped contraption that's going to float on top of the water. It uses a screen uh, attached below to collect plastic and other debris. The floating barriers will uh, then concentrate the plastic garbage at a central point where it can be uh, fished out of the water and shipped back to dry uh, dry land for recycling. So you kind of get the idea. Well, the screen is impermeable. Uh, the current will flow underneath the screens, guiding uh, the organisms that act, that uh, can't actively move, uh, while the plastic, which floats, remains inside the system, the Ocean Cleanup explains uh, on its website. Well, the Marine Debris Program Manager of the California Coastal Commission said he believes the organization has the best of intentions, but they're only tackling a small percentage of the overall plastic entering the oceans every year. Well, it, you know... Don't despise the day of small things, I suppose. Eight million metric tons of trash are entering the world's oceans every single year. And that, of course, adds up. It doesn't disintegrate. The project could be wildly um, successful cleaning the surface, but they're only tackling a minuscule percentage. Uh, Mr. Schwartz said that they um, met with members of the ocean cleanup and toured the test facility, clarifying that he hopes the project is a huge success. He has concerns with some of the rhetoric the group is spreading, maybe raising expectations a bit higher than they should. Eight million metric tons of trash are entering the world's oceans every single year. Their project could be uh, successful at uh, at least touching the surface. The ocean cleanup estimates that they're going to be able to get rid of roughly 90% of ocean plastic uh, from every ocean, um, huge parts of the the ocean where the swirling currents concentrate the the trash by 2040. Again, that may be an overstatement. The staggering statistics uh, concern some experts. Uh, My biggest concern, says one, isn't the project itself. It's the messaging that's coming out, again, over-promising but the effort is being uh, is being made, and it will be interesting to see what they're actually able to accomplish. Well, U.S. adults are now spending nearly half a day interacting with media. The world has never been more connected and disconnected, and U.S. audiences have never had as many options to access content as they do these days. And in short, consumers in the United States seem like they can't get enough content, and the possibilities for marketers to reach them Well, fragmented is an opportunity that is just too good to pass up. The result, American adults are spending over 11 hours a day listening to, watching, reading, or generally interacting with media. Now, according to the first quarter 2018 Nielsen Total Audience Report, nearly half of an adult's life is dedicated to consuming this content. Now, the fact that they're consuming content isn't in and of itself a bad thing, but what is that content? That's either good or bad, helpful or not. In fact, American adults spend over 11 hours a day listening to, watching, reading, generally interacting with us, with the stuff. Behind this surge are the growing use of new platforms as well as the younger multicultural generations who leverage them. And it's uh, pretty interesting to look at those numbers. The amount of people using or the number of people using traditional platforms held relatively steady when looking deeper into the data. Live plus time-shifted TV viewing and the radio have remained consistent over the measured quarters. A testament to the relative stability of these cornerstone media platforms. You'll notice radio is in there. Radio alone reaches 92% of adults on a weekly basis. Uh, live and time-shifted TV has uh, a weekly reach of 88%. Overall, live and time-shifted television, even when accounted for seasonal fluctuations in viewership, still accounts for a majority of an adult's media usage, with four hours and 46 minutes being spent with the platform daily in first 
in the first quarter of this year. Uh, newer platforms that have emerged as a result of Internet accessibility and growing connectedness for consumers are ultimately uh, behind the, uh, the growth of the media usage. For example, TV-connected devices such as video game consoles, Internet-connected devices, Google, Chromecast, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Smart TV apps, allow audiences to use their Internet connectedness and access a treasure trove or something else of content to interact with at will no matter where they happen to be. From fourth quarter 2017 to first quarter 2018, daily time spent on those devices by adults increased by five minutes to about 40 minutes. Uh, Specifically, 14 of those minutes are dedicated to game consoles, while 26 belong to Internet-connected devices. Uh, So again, this is... um, is pretty interesting. Historically, demographics have been a major factor in determining media use. Older generations tend to lean more on traditional mediums. Younger generations, uh, early adopters of the nascent technology, the emerging and new technology. And as technology gained adoption and became universal, it would trickle up through the, the uh, demographics. Uh, older generations generally spend the most time with media, uh, about 35 to 49 uh, year old spent about 11 hours a day on it, while uh, adults 50 to 64 nearly 13 hours a day. That may account for them being uh, having more leisure time, being uh, retired. Younger generations are at the forefront of TV-connected devices and digital usage. Radio is uniquely immune to having age as a factor. It consistently accounts uh, for between 14 to 70 percent, 17 percent of daily usage. Young adults 18 to 34 spend 43 percent of their time consuming media on digital platforms. Almost a third of their time is spent with media. 29 percent comes from apps, webs on uh, smartphone, the most of any measured generation. Their share of TV connected device usage, about 14 percent, is uh, double that of total adults 18 um, plus and seven times as much as adults over the age of 65. These young adults outpace their generations in terms of daily TV TV-connected device usage to the tune of an hour and 15 minutes, uh, almost half an hour more than the average adult. Now you account for future generations and emerging technologies. One wonders if um, younger generations, those yet to uh, be exposed to this kind of uh, technology, will have time to do anything else. So how does... Um, how does this fare for the future? Well, it, of course, content does make a difference, but it's rather interesting that uh, so much time is being spent on devices, and I hope, one can only hope that we are wise in the uh, content choices that are being made. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back and wrap things up. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.